We are diving into the book of James today. We're going to be taking our time as evidenced by the fact that today we're just covering chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, don't let that freak you out because we're not always going to go that slow, but there's so much in chapter 1 that we want to take our time and really glean all that there is for us today. And I want to talk about displacement. I want to talk about the different ways or causes that lead us to a place of displacement in our lives. And I want to talk about how that relates to God's sovereignty. And if you've never heard that word sovereignty in relation to God, when we say that God is sovereign, we say that he's in control of all things. And while we believe that God created us with free will, in the ability to make our own decisions. He didn't create us as robots that he wound up to go on a predetermined course. We, we don't believe that God is responsible for all the evil and bad things that happen in the world. He allows them to happen, and at the same time, we affirm that he is able to work all things together for good, as Romans 8.28 says, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So nothing hinders God from accomplishing his plans and his purposes. And as I said, we're going to talk about displacement. Our community has been through a ton in the last month and a half, and Santa Barbara is going through a ton of tragedy and displacement right now as well. There are many in our midst that have been displaced in huge ways, uh, some more than others. And I want to talk about how God can still be at work in the midst of that, those hard things. Um, as we begin today, I want to read chapter 1 in its entirety, and I actually want to um, recite it for you today, and I don't want to do that at all to draw attention. In fact, I would prefer if you just look at your Bible and you don't look at me, because I, I don't enjoy, but I have a, a very important point that I want to make. Um, I memorized it from the New American Standard Version, and so I'm going to cover James 1 today, and then we'll, we'll dive into talking about the background of the book and the author and the audience, and a lot of important details that will set us up for our study. James writes, A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were scattered or dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation, for like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. But blessed is the man or the woman who perseveres under trial. For once they have been approved, they will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brothers and sisters, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, let us receive in humility the word implanted which is able to save our souls. And prove ourselves doers of the words of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but rather an effectual doer, this person will be blessed in all that they do. If anyone thinks themselves to be religious, and yet does not bridle their own tongue, but deceives their own heart, this person's religion is vain or worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The reason why I quote that as we go into this book of James is because I memorized that 40 years ago. I memorized that in middle school. And I, I can't tell you how many things I did in middle school that are still in my mind or still present today. About the only thing I can remember off the top of my I, I still know how to ride a unicycle, which I also learned around the same time in middle school. But it just goes to show the value of hiding God's word in your heart. Because for the last 40 years, I've had this scripture in, in my mind and, and been reminded of that as I'm tempted or as I'm challenged or as I go through hard times or as I have to make important decisions. And uh, the truth is, I got all the way to chapter 4 of James and almost memorized the whole book, but never actually finished it. And uh, the funny thing is, every time I would rehearse what I learned, I'd go back and repeat chapter 1 and start from the beginning. So I got chapter 1 down really well, but the 2 through 4 is a little bit fuzzy. But, I mean, the cool thing is it took me about 5-10 minutes this week to, to remind myself of that. And that's, that's the power of God's Word at work in our lives. So as we begin this very practical study of a, a very application-oriented book. Uh, there's a lot for us there, and I want to begin, as I said, with some background today, which we won't do every week, but it's important to know just some details as we dive in. One feature of James that would have been immediately noticeable or uh, impressive to ancient readers as well as modern readers alike is the fact that James draws heavily upon the teachings of Jesus. And it's not so much that he quotes Jesus directly as that he, he weaves the content of what Jesus taught into the very fabric and soul of, of his writing. And the author, uh, as we're going to talk about who that author is, seems to have been so immersed in the teaching and the life of Jesus that he's able to reflect upon it and draw upon it almost unconsciously. And so the natural question that arises is, which of the James that are mentioned in the New Testament actually wrote this book for us? And one very popular suggestion that people have put forward is James, the son of Zebedee. 
James, the son of Zebedee, was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose. He was kind of part of that inner circle of disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John that got to witness Jesus' transfiguration as he was transformed before their very eyes. Uh, they were there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And he was also one of the people that was an eyewitness to the Lord's resurrection. And so that's a very strong possible suggestion. But the truth is that he died uh, before this book was written. And so the date of this letter keeps him from being a viable candidate. And the only other really significant James that is mentioned in Scripture who would have the credentials and ability to write this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, which uh, we believe is a true author of this book. He's mentioned in the Gospels, and uh, he actually didn't become a follower of Christ until after the Lord resurrected. So that's kind of a unique detail about him. Acts chapter 12, verse 17 mentions his position of leadership in the early church that met at Jerusalem. And uh, he's really the only disciple or apostle who lived long enough to have written this letter and to be prominent enough to identify themselves simply as James without any other credentials or support or information that could identify him. The, the humans, humanist scholar Erasmus had some real issues and doubts regarding the letter's apostolic origin because he questioned whether the brother of Jesus could have written a letter that demonstrates such advanced Greek. Two of the, the books that have the most advanced Greek in all of the New Testament are the book of Hebrews and the book of James. A lot of the other Greek is pretty elementary and, and basic, but James and Hebrews in particular are very eloquent and very advanced in, in their detail and their nature. And yet we also know that a lot of people that wrote back at this time used secretaries. And so it could have been that the secretary possessed those skills, and really doesn't matter, but we believe that James is the author. Luther also doubted the status of the letter because he believed so much in the Apostle Paul's teaching of justification by faith and faith alone that he was really challenged and troubled by the emphasis that James places upon not just faith, but also works. Um, Jerome was probably the, the most influential in helping James to be accepted and, and um, endorsed as part of the, the biblical canon because Jerome, as you might recall, produced the Latin version of the Bible, which we call the Latin Vulgate. And he included James, and he also cited James uh, quite, quite often in this work. Well, on top of this, he also identified James as the half-brother of Jesus, and, and Augustine followed suit. And about by the 4th century, the book of James was included into the Christian canon of, uh, of Scripture. But one of the things that we'll notice as we get into the book of James is it's not addressed specifically to any one church. It's, it's, it's kind of a universal letter. It's known as a Catholic or universal epistle or letter because its, it's audience is everybody, the world. And because of that, they think that's another reason why maybe it wasn't accepted right away. But the audience that James writes to becomes revealed in the opening lines of of uh, this book. It says he's addressing this to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, which very much seems like a Jewish audience. 
In chapter 2, verse 2, we find out that his audience meets in a synagogue, which is another reason for believing that the audience is Jewish. Um, They believe that the law is key uh, to understanding God's plan and expectation for his people. That we see throughout the book. And it seems that the audience understood the Old Testament imagery of marriage and understood that, that marriage was symbolic of God's relationship with his people, and specifically of Christ's uh, relationship with the church. We see that in chapter 4 of James. Well, the fact that the readers were dispersed or scattered, uh, forced to live away from their home country, points to the fact that they were probably impoverished and oppressed. And we see indications of that, like in in chapter 5, because wealthy landowners take advantage of them, Rich people drag them into court and despise and ridicule them for their faith in chapter 2. And yet it's not just as simple as identifying the audience as the oppressed and the impoverished ones and their oppressors as the rich ones, because in chapter 4, James goes on to talk about wealthy merchants who travel here and there at, at a moment's notice and by their own whim. And so it seems that there were also some very wealthy people within the communities. Uh, to whom James wrote. Well, just a few last details before we dive in, but we know that James, the half-brother of Jesus, died about A.D. 62, and so the book has to have been written before that. And there's a few indications within the letter that really drive us to believe that the letter was written somewhere in the mid-40s A.D. The first is that although James writes with an understanding of Paul's teaching about justification by faith, uh, there, it didn't seem like it was really fleshed out, and it seemed like there was a lot of differences between what Paul taught and what James said. And yet we also know that James and Paul met in the late 40s at the Council of Jerusalem, and it seems that they would have fleshed out a lot of these details and come to some consensus. And so that's one reason why they think the book was written before, as well as a second reason that there doesn't seem to be any awareness or um, reference to the disputes that arose in the early church over taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul was one of the very first apostles who saw it as his mission to take the gospel and and the, the good news about Jesus Christ and salvation beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And that caused a lot of people in the early church to be up in arms, like, you know, why are you taking you know, what belongs to us and taking it out to the whole world. And there doesn't seem to be any reference to that or dispute over that in James. And so that's the second reason for a a date in the mid-40s. The last thing that I'll say is that striking to both ancient readers and modern readers is also the lack of clear organization in the book of James. It seems that, that James moves quickly from topic to topic, and there's not a whole lot of correlation or, re, or relation between the things that he discusses. And the closest book that I could liken it to is, is Proverbs. As we read through Proverbs, there's a lot of bits of wisdom and cool things, but when you try and relate them together, it's like it's all over the place. And James is very much like that, and it's one of the reasons why it's so hard to preach, because you can't take big blocks of Scripture in James and, and talk about how they relate together. And that's why we're going to take our time and take all of the isolated truths that James lifts up and and look at each one of those individually. So having said that, let's dive into uh, verse 1. 
As we said, James opens by identifying himself as the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed or scattered abroad. James doesn't identify himself as the, the brother of Jesus. He doesn't identify himself as the head pastor or elder at the church at Jerusalem. He doesn't identify himself as an eyewitness of the Lord's resurrection. But humbly and simply, he identifies himself as a fellow servant, which speaks a lot to his character. He's not pulling rank. He's not bragging about his status. But he's basically saying, I am a fellow follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm holding myself as I hold you accountable to his teachings and his instruction. It's interesting, too, that he uses the word bondservant, because as you may recall, a bondservant went beyond an ordinary servant in that bondservants were servants who had served their time under their master and then had been given the opportunity for freedom, but had willingly chose to stay with their master because either they thought that they'd have a better life or their family would be more protected or cared for, for whatever reason. It was a choice for them to stay. And so it's significant that James describes himself as a bondservant because he's not serving the Lord out of obligation or duty, but he's doing that by choice. And I think that's very significant. And as I said, he doesn't flaunt his status or credentials, but he places himself as a fellow servant and appeals to his audience through this. The Apostle Paul actually referred to James as a, as a fellow apostle in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. And yet James, nonetheless, does not claim that status for himself, but simply a bondservant. And he states that he's, his service or his allegiance is not just to God, but also to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think by doing that, he puts God and Jesus Christ on the same level. And he affirms a few things about Jesus that we as Christians hold to be true. The first is that he is God. That Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just the Son of God. He's not just the creator of the universe and everything that we see. But he is God come in human flesh. And that's very significant because that's what differentiates Christianity from every other cult and religion of the world. That Jesus is not just a prophet or a teacher or the Son of God or the Creator, but He is also God come in human flesh. Secondly, He affirms that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And as we've said many times, Christ is not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. But it speaks to His office and His role. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is the one who was foretold and prophesied of in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all that God spoke of. And so James is affirming these things as he writes and introduces himself. As we continue in verse 1, we discover that, as I said, that the letter is not addressed to any single church, but to a whole group of churches. And it's led this letter to be categorized along with First and Second Peter and First and Second and Third John and and Jude as universal letters, meaning they're intended for anybody and everybody. But he writes to the 12 tribes, which reflects the, the origins of Israel, that they were made up originally of the people who descended from the 12 patriarchs, the sons of Jacob. And Jacob later became Israel, as we know. And these tribes were originally scattered and dispersed through the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests, 
But over the years, there was a lot of reasons, uh, persecution mainly, why these Christians moved from place to place and lived outside of Jerusalem or outside of Palestine. And we get an indication of this in Matthew chapter uh, 19, verse eight, uh, 28, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. We, we get an indication that God, through Jesus, is restoring these tribes that were scattered and dispersed back to himself. God had always talked about that, though you will be exiled and though you will be in captivity, one day I'm going to bring you back together. And that's hugely significant in that Jesus chose 12 men to follow him, 12 disciples. A lot of people see that as Jesus beginning that restoration of the end times or last days Israel by calling the 12 disciples and how uh, that verse in John and in Matthew speaks of the fact that we will one day sit on those thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The last thing that I want to say in regard to that too is that in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John speaks of the last days people of God in terms of 12,000 people drawn together from each of the 12 tribes. And of the heavenly Jerusalem with 12 gates on which were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So having said all this, when James addresses his audience as the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he's speaking of the end times Israel, the people of God living in the last days. And you might say, well, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. But as we read in Scripture, a thousand days are like a thousand days or a thousand years are like a day with the Lord, that God does not have the same economy of time that we do. And the the last days began with Jesus' earthly ministry, and we are now still living in the last days. We are, the, we are included in this last days people of God. And so he's, he's writing to us as well. Well, that phrase scattered abroad comes from a Greek word which literally means diaspora. And maybe you've heard of the dispersion. That word dispersion became a technical term to speak of Jews who lived outside of Palestine that had been displaced in all the surrounding areas. And this is actually spoken of in John 7.35 where the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go, meaning Jesus, that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? The, the Religious leaders were trying to find Jesus and pin him down, and, and they were saying, where is he going to go and hide that we can't find him? He's not going to go to the Gentiles, is he? Because the inference was, if he goes to the Gentiles, we're not going near those people because they're not the chosen. They're not the holy, the holy ones. But they referred to those people living outside of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas as the, the dispersion. And that word literally means, in the original language, to plant or to sow. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning, having built up all that background. I want to talk about why God allows us to be displaced, to be scattered. And I want to talk about the different ways in which we can find ourselves to be displaced. But the question that I want to ask throughout this is, do you and I as Christians believe that even in the scattering, God remains sovereign? 
that he has planted each one of us, he has sowed each one of us exactly where he wants us, that you and I live exactly where he wants us to live, we work where he wants us to work, and we, we interact with those circles of people that God has designed for us to interact with. Kind of the old phrase, bloom where you're planted, that God has sovereignly, divinely planted us exactly where he wants us to be to have the witness and the testimony that he desires us to have. So that's what we're going to talk about. And I want to begin on your outline. Point number one is sometimes we're displaced because of crisis. Crisis is the first fill in there. I believe that sometimes God allows us to be displaced because of crisis. I mean, that's exactly what we've been through in this community with the, the Thomas fires and with the floods with all that's, a lot have been displaced. And many believe that this original audience that, that James wrote to is the audience that's referred to in Acts chapter 11. Listen to what Luke writes in Acts 11. He says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. You may recall that Stephen was the first Christian who was martyred for his faith, for his testimony in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, who was then Saul, was in the audience as Stephen was being persecuted. And Saul gave his approval for the killing of Stephen. And after the killing of Stephen, widespread persecution broke out. Uh, against anyone who named themselves as Christian who are, or who aligned themselves with the teachings of Jesus. And this passage in Acts 11 says that because of that, many Jews who lived in Jerusalem went to these outlying regions of Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And many believe that that is exactly the audience that James is now writing to, those who were scattered and dispersed because of persecution. It's easy to imagine these early Christians leaving their homes, trying to establish new lives in new and often hostile environments and communities, and because of this dislocation and displacement, becoming very unsettled. And it would be only natural for James, as the leader of the church at Jerusalem, to reach out to them as their pastor, and to encourage them and exhort them and and, uh, hold them accountable to God's word. And so that's the question that I want to, I want to raise at this early stage in, in, our, in our lesson today. Whether you and I believe that God is sovereign over our displacement, particularly in times of crisis. As I said earlier, God is not responsible for all the evil and sin that happens in the world. I don't believe that that reflects his perfect will, but he allows it. And do we as Christians believe that he is sovereign over it, or in spite of it, meaning that he still accomplishes his will and his purpose, despite the hard things that happen to you and I, despite the trials, despite the challenges. If we truly believe this, then we, we have to affirm either that trials and testing and crisis either don't alter God's plan and purposes for us, or crazier yet, that trials and challenges and crisis might sometimes actually be the very vehicle that he uses to bring about his plans and purposes, which is mind-blowing. But I really believe that. 
either the things that happen to us don't alter God's ultimate purpose and, and plans for us, or many times often are the very thing that he uses to bring that about. And I believe that we have to affirm that as Christians to, to really see God at work. Otherwise, it just seems like he doesn't care and that everything is random and everybody for themselves. The second thing that I think that God allows uh, to displace us is our own choice. Point number two. Sometimes we experience displacement because of our own choice. And chapter four of James speaks of that, of people who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And James says, yet you don't know that your life, what it will be like tomorrow. You don't realize that you're just a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes away. So instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. James draws his, uh, his readers to, to, to realize once again that it's so important, vitally important, to, to consult God in all of our decisions, in all of our plans. Because if we want to be in the center of God's will and for God to accomplish His will and purposes in our life, we don't just make decisions on our own. And I guess one of the things we have to come to grips with is we're all aware that many times we don't make wise decisions. And the question becomes, do we still believe that God can work in spite of our sin? Do we really believe that we haven't screwed up our life so bad that God is rendered powerless? And do we believe the truth of Romans 28, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his plan? That although everything that happens to us and the choices that we make may not sometimes reflect his will or be honoring to him, but despite that, he is able to accomplish his will and purposes in our life. Well, the last thing I want to suggest is sometimes we're displaced because of God's divine appointment. God's divine appointment. And Acts 17 speaks of this. Acts 17, verse 26 says this. It's there in your outline. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they would seek God. So somehow, God allows us to make our own choices, and yet he knows, because of his foreknowledge and his, the fact that he knows all things, he knows exactly where we're going to live, he knows exactly where we're going to work, he knows exactly who our friends are going to be, and he's sovereignly over all that and uses all of that for his plans and purposes, which, which is just beyond human comprehension. I was reading this week about the, the passage in Romans Romans 9, where God talks about Pharaoh. And as you recall the story of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Pharaoh was a pretty, pretty arrogant character. He was pretty full of himself and his power and, and the fact that at the time he seemed to be over the whole world. And God says in Romans 9, he said, so that it does not depend upon the, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but rather on God who has mercy. For Scripture says this to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. This is what God is saying to Pharaoh. Although you think that you rose to power by your own 
cleverness and brilliance and hard work. I was the one who put you there. And I could put anybody there. And the only reason why I put you there was to accomplish my plan and my will and to glorify myself. It's not even about you. And it's a reminder that although people make their own decisions on a human level, God works in spite of that to accomplish His grander, uh, bigger plans and purposes in our life and in the world. And so, again, I want to draw application here. Do we really believe that God is sovereign over our scattering and our displacement? That wherever we find ourselves as a result of crisis or the result of our own choices, be they good or bad, or by God's divine placement, that He is sovereign over that and He's using that. And I was reminded of an illustration that I I gave years ago, and some of you might remember it. It's probably been at least seven years since I used this illustration, but WD-40. Anybody know what WD-40 stands for? And you need to know, first service, Dave Fabulich knew. Water displacement. All of our tech guys know that. Water displacement. And what does the 40 stand for? They got it right on the 40th try. So 39 times they tried and failed. And on the 40th time, they, they discovered this secret formula. And apparently the story is that a guy by the name of Norm Larson, founder of Rocket Chemical Company, um, aimed to develop a line of rust prevention solvents and degreasers for use in the aerospace industry. And he succeeded at the goal of water displacement on the 40th attempt, and hence the name. I use WD-40 at home for anything that squeaks or anything that is so tight that I can't get it undone, so I spray a little and it's easier to, to get it undone. But I like it because it's a cool story and because it's memorable. And my challenge to you is, what would the W stand for in your life? What would the W stand for in your life? And I, I would suggest that the W would stand for either that which God is displacing from our life, or that which he is using to displace things from our life. So one example might be God is using his word, the word of God, to, to displace sin from my life and sin from your life. Um, I talked to somebody else this week that was talking about how God has used trials and tragedy and crises in their own life to displace worry from reigning over them and from causing anxiety to rule over them. That they have found victory in the midst of trials and hard times because God has displaced worry from being a, a dominant part of their life. What would the W be for, for you? What would it be that God is displacing, or what it, would it be that he's using to displace? I'd love to hear from you in emails this week or texts as we go through the series because I think that that is hugely practical as we, as we encourage each other and as we realize that that God is working in spite of and despite of the tough things that we go through. And next week we're going to really get into it as we talk about trials and James' exhortation to consider it all joy in the midst of these things, knowing that God is producing endurance in us. Let's pray.